Uh, today we need extra time. Go as fast as we can. Because uh, today we are going to talk about Martin Luther. And uh, obviously there's way more to say about his life than what I'm going to say. But my goal today is to help you understand from his life um, how he became the uh, centerpiece of the Reformation. Uh, so let's open up a word of prayer, and then I'll say a few introductory things, and we'll get going with him. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for uh, the fact that you are a God of means, and you use people as your means to accomplish your will, and it is our honor and privilege to do so, Lord, because we are ungrateful and unworthy vessels, but Lord, you use us to show your power. Lord, we pray that you would help us uh, uh, learn something important about uh, your servant uh, today, Lord, and that it might impact our hearts. Lord, we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Okay. So, um, what's interesting about Luther is how, uh, how if you were to go into a Baptist church, uh, almost no matter what stripe they are, they'd love Luther. And if you go into a Presbyterian church, typically, if they're not liberals, uh, they're going to love Luther. Um, it seems like everyone loves Luther. That, that's not a Lutheran. <laughs> uh, you go into a Lutheran church, and most of their doctrine centers around a guy named Melanchthon, not really Luther. Uh, there, there are some churches in the Lutheran world that follow Luther himself. They would be people from the Missouri Synod and uh, the Wisconsin Synod still uh, would be what we would really call Lutherans. Um, the liberal Lutherans we might call Philippists, as they were called early in, uh, in history, the people that follow Philip Melanchthon. So, uh, so there's a lot we can learn from this guy. Um, Martin Luther was born in 1483 in Eisleben, um, and ironically that is where he dies. Uh, not out of, uh, it wasn't on purpose, not like he retired back where he came from. It just was a really strange coincidence he was there, and he died. And we'll talk about that very briefly at the end when I run out of time. Okay, so um, uh, the year after he was born, 1484, his father, um, they moved to Mensfield, and his father became a miner. Uh, he managed a mine. Uh, so he was, this was a time, I know in America we're very used to people, you know, getting a job, you know, they're on the lower level of things, and then they work their way up to the top, you know, usually to some kind of management job before they retire. That's a usual thing for us, and this would sound normal to us, but it was not normal back then. So, um, so Hans uh, Luther... Martin Luther's father was a man that had ambition. Um, 
In those days, the oldest son would not get an inheritance. Um, that was usually to protect the younger sons uh, to be able to get something. The older son was expected to make his own way. Hans was the oldest. So Hans had to make his own way. And he started out as a miner in a copper mine. And, uh, you know, chipping rock. And then slowly he worked his way up to being in charge of a few guys, uh, chipping rock with them. And then pretty soon he became someone who was actually running the mine. Um, it became his. Now the reason why he wanted to do this was because he took, uh, he really wanted his son Luther or Martin to get out there and be something. So he did not have to chip rock, right? So this was something that we can identify with as Americans, where we work hard. Some of us um, that start out or continue in blue-collar work, we're working hard so that you know maybe our kid could get to college and we might have a fund enough for them to go to college because maybe no one in your family went to college and you want your son to go to college. It was that kind of a thing. And so, what, uh, so that's why um, it's important to know that Martin Luther was supposed to be a lawyer. Um, his father worked very hard for him to be able to afford to go to college so that he could be a lawyer. Um, he did not want his son in a mine. <coughs> Excuse me. So, when Luther is old enough, he goes to the University of Erfurt. Uh, he was uh, studying to be a lawyer. This was in 1501. And he started his work uh, for a few years studying to be a lawyer. In 1505, he goes and visits his parents, as most college students do, and then starts his way back, horseback, to the university so he can continue his studies. And while he is riding back, it's raining, which, you know, back then wasn't a big deal because you just kind of, just kind of did it, you know. Even though it was raining, you just kept on going. But it started to lightning and thunder. And a thunderbolt came and shot right next to his horse, uh, threw him off the horse. The horse was scared. Uh, it was this traumatic event, uh, if you've ever been awakened by a thunderbolt that was even just a mile away from your, from your home, you know how powerful that could sound. Imagine if it was close enough to knock you off your horse. So this event wasn't just a normal event or just an interesting event. Uh, Luther was a man who grew up at a time where people were not thinking in scientific ways. So we would think, okay, it's raining, obviously there's going to be some electricity up there. We may not be sure exactly how it all works, but we know in a scientific manner things just happen. And so a lightning bolt near me, wow, what a coincidence, that's crazy, I can't believe that happened, this will make a great story when I get back to campus. That's how we would respond to it typically. Back then, and this is usually criticized by people uh, even historians. But back then, they, they believed everything meant something. 
Uh, when you walk through the woods back then, you would think maybe there might be some goblins or something out there, uh, and you'd be, you'd be an adult thinking this. Now, today we don't think those things, right? Today we, we think so scientifically, uh, we have... We have uh, we have made our lives so scientific that we, we have kind of kicked any idea of demons and Satan almost completely out of our minds. In fact, if you, if you go to Christian universities today, uh, you would learn about people having multi-personality disorder, whatever they call it nowadays, and we have terms for things, and it would never cross our mind that we would be talking about demon-possessed people, because that's crazy. I mean, you know, we have people that say they hear voices, uh, but we know that's a disorder that couldn't possibly be a demon because that would make us crazy people, right? We have people that literally seem to transform into other personalities and seem to talk with different voices, and we're like, disorder from the brain. Couldn't possibly be a demon because that'd be crazy, right? That's how we think today, right? Uh, Back then, they had a much more sensitive mind towards the spiritual world. I say all that to say that Martin Luther did not see this lightning bolt striking next to him as something that was just interesting or that there was some electricity up in the heavens that came down to the earth, but he, said, he thought this was a sign from God. And he called upon um, Saint Anne to help him. Uh, to have mercy on him, and if, if there would be have mercy on him, uh, then he would become a monk, because he thought he was going to die. Um, now, who's Saint Anne? In those days, people had saints that they would call out to for help. Saint Anne um, was the uh, saint of, um, there was, she had two functions. One was uh, the saint of, like, Youth, people that are younger um, and traveling, something like that. Yeah, traveling. But it had something to do with, like, younger people. Anyway, she was a saint of uh, people who are traveling, but also the saint of people who are caught in thunderstorms. A little something for everybody. Um, <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, it is. There's a lot of superstition in the in the uh, Catholic world. Um, but I was I was positive about the, those two, the traveling and the thunderstorm. But it might be miners as well, because they these these saints took on a lot of a lot of different tasks. You know, they were. I mean. You're covering every base with this one woman. And think of this. Under stress, he knew which one to call on. I mean, that's pretty good. you got to be pretty familiar with your saints. Uh, okay, I'm in a thunderstorm. Uh, my dad's a minor. Uh, Saint Anne. Done. Okay, so... So anyway... Um, there is some correlation between the way the Catholics treated the saints... And Hinduism, but I won't get into that now. Okay. Um, but you got to remember, back then there weren't, you know, it wasn't like, oh, you're a Catholic? Uh, everybody was a Catholic. Um, 
Luther hasn't done his work yet, and we'll get to that if I need to move. Okay, here we go. So he believed that this event had some kind of meaning that God was trying to tell him something. And so he decided he needed to become a monk. Now you have to remember, dad sacrificed his entire career and life and work to get him to be a lawyer. And he was almost doing it, and then he decides, I'm not doing it. I'm going to be a monk. To add insult to injury, he's not going to be just a... He wasn't going to be a cool monk. So there were two uh, very prestigious um, uh, monasteries. You had the Dominicans and you had the Franciscans. The Dominicans and the Franciscans were like Harvard and Yale of the monasteries. I mean, these were the elite. At the very least, he could have done that. But instead, he became an, uh, an Augustinian monk. It's kind of like saying, uh, forget... Harvard, I'm going to Michigan State. <laughs> now, there's nothing wrong with Michigan State. It's a fine school, but it ain't Harvard. Okay. <coughs> His father obviously was furious at this. And you have to understand, there is an incredible, uh, there's incredible influence fathers have on their sons. Um, there is a, uh, there, one of my professors was talking about um, his father, and uh, his father had died uh, maybe a, two, three years ago at the time he was t- talking to us, and he was, a, he was in his 50s. Uh, the, the professor was in his 50s. <clears throat> the prof- my professor said that he, um, when his father died, he thought to himself, um, he had this strange feeling of peace because he said, now I don't have to be good at anything anymore. Because he said he kind of felt that his whole life was trying to make his dad proud. And when his dad passed, he just felt this sense of, I don't have anyone to show that I did a good job. You know what I mean? And so it's, it's something that never goes away, um, this idea of wanting to make your father proud wanting to have someone that means that much to you say, I'm proud of you. I can't believe what you've done with yourself. And so then to, as a young man, have to do something that you know your father despises and that you are kind of dishonoring him a little bit, maybe even a lot, by making this move. But he was so convinced of it that God was calling him to this that he felt he had to do it. So he, uh, he became ordained as a priest in 1507. Now you have to remember what the, why this is so important. In 1507, he's ordained as a priest, which means what? Which means he starts to have a lot of interaction with congregations. He's visiting sick people. He's counseling people. He's talking to people. He starts having a heart for the people. This is going to be very influential when he finds out what's going on with indulgences about 10 years later. Okay? So this is why these things matter. He's really learning you know, that a congregation just isn't this big audience you get on a Sunday. It's people that he starts really loving and caring about. 
to the point where it infuriate, infuriates him. I don't know why I can't say that word. Um, it makes him hugely angry uh, when he finds out how they're being abused. Okay. So, um, so there's two big things that happen as a priest back then. Um, you preach the word, that's important, and you give the sacraments. And one of the most important moments of his life was giving, uh, was celebrating the mass. And on the first day, uh, he celebrates the mass. It's his first mass where he is running the show. Um, his father is in the congregation. And so that's some additional stress. Um, as you know, or maybe don't know, one of, the, one of the activities of the priest is to take the bread and to hold it up. This is a, uh, significa- you're signifying that you are, that the bread is God in your hands, offering it up. And so he's standing there with the bread in his hands, Believing with all his heart, this is God in my hands. And his question is, who am I? How is it possible me, a sinner, can hold God in my hands? Now this is going to be important, because this question is going to haunt him all the way to his understanding of what, how humble we ought to be. Um... Because, as a priest, he is taught the theology of the church. And the theology of the church came from a guy named Gabriel Beale. Gabriel Beale had this idea that you have to do your best. Do what is in you. Okay? And so if you do your best, and you do what is in you, then God will bless you. And so God's blessing comes from you doing the best you can. Um, And and remember, this this best that is in you is in you. Yeah, so there's something good in you. And if you do your best, God, God will bless this. So God gives grace to those who do their best. Now you can see how... Eventually, an American might get their hands on this kind of idea and use it as a little phrase, God helps those who help themselves, right? Uh, that'll be a little later in, the, in, in life, but uh, I think it was that Benjamin Franklin or something. He was always saying stuff like that. It was like the pagan Bible is Benjamin Franklin, isn't it? Okay, so... Um, this, this idea began to haunt uh, Luther. Because the question is, how is it possible for me to do my best? In other words, what is best enough for an all-holy, almighty God? And he's getting this idea because he's standing there as a sinner holding God in his hands. And he's saying, how is it possible for me to do this? Have I done enough to be able to hold God in my hands? And the answer is, you haven't. And this plagues him. 
he has a little bit of a breakdown. Some people have blamed it on the fact that his dad was in the congregation. And that might be part of it, but that's a huge oversimplification. There's a guy named Erickson that kind of believed that. Um, but that's a huge oversimplification because you have a man that really started thinking about his sin and what that means. Um, so in 1510, he is transferred from being a priest over to Wittenberg to be a professor at the University of Wittenberg. And while there, uh, he has, uh, there is a guy that rules there called Frederick the Wise who rules Saxony. Back then, you had emperors. And ironically enough, emperors did not uh, pass on em their emperorness to their sons. You had to be elected. And so to be elected, you had to have electors. And Frederick the Wise was one of the electors. So Wittenberg was not a very important place. It was kind of one of those podunk places. Um, you know, it was a little town, but it wasn't like important or st strategic or anything like that. But Frederick the Wise was an elector, and it made him important because the, you know, the emperor depended on him. And so, um, and so that will be important later on, but... As Luther, um, as Luther works at Wittenberg, um, one, of the, one of the things you get to do uh, as a professor is um, they let you go and visit Rome. And so he went and visited Rome. And that is where things started to turn for Luther. So he gets there and he sees this incredible corruption over there. You got these people that are just living the high life. I mean, they have, um, they are eating well, they have all this stuff. Um, it is, well, it's like visiting Washington, D.C. Um, that's what it was like. You have these people living off of the taxes and the hard work of people that don't have anything, and they're just squandering it, they're using it for, um, for themselves. Uh, the papal court was, um, was a hugely political place. And he was disgusted. I mean, he thought, he thought that God meant something to these people, right? It's like people that really love the Constitution, you know, and then they visit D.C. and they're like, what's going on? Don't they love the Constitution? Well, no, not when it's not helpful for them. So my point is, this is how Luther felt. I'm trying to give you some correlations I don't know if it's helping or not. Okay, so. Um, and you have to remember, uh, he believed in this, um, he believed so strongly in, um, if I can put it this way, the spiritual reality of the world he lived in. Um, he saw people that were not taking any of that seriously. So his... I mean, there's a lot of crazy things that you can find him say about, about Satan, uh, all the way down to if you are confronted with Satan, he would give you instruction to pass gas. Uh, and that's one of his famous uh, sayings about how you are to treat Satan when he's in your presence. And I know there's some crazy things that he has said about all that. 
But, you know, he took that very seriously. And so imagine taking, taking battle with Satan as something that is on your mind all the time, and then you go to a place where the people who are, like, in charge and are supposed to be the ones who are supposed to take this the most seriously are acting like there's nothing to be afraid of to the point where they can sin against the people. So, this is where um, everything really starts changing. About <coughs> four years after his visit to Rome, he teaches a course at, uh, in Wittenberg on the book of Romans. And this really is where everything changes for Luther. Uh, there's very, there's, uh, if you ever study a, a book really closely, you begin to wonder how people can see things any other way. Like It's, it's hard to believe that Arminians have read the book of Romans. Um, <clears throat> it's hard not to be a Calvinist after reading the book of Romans. It's also hard not to be Reformed after reading the book of Galatians. I don't see how anyone could be, think any other way when you read Galatians. It's really clear. Uh, but, but for Romans, uh, for Luther, he, when, he, when he taught the book of Romans, it changed everything. Why? Because there's two big events that he was constantly doing, and that is uh, the Mass and baptism. And in the Catholic Church, what is baptism? Baptism is a washing of the sins that are a stain on the person. So the stain. For Luther, he's looking at sin and he's saying, is sin really just the stain that's on me? That's not really a part of who I am, but a stain on me that can be washed away in baptism. That's how the Catholic Church was viewing it. Because remember, Gabriel Beale, who taught everyone that you are to do your best, do what is in you. So there is this spark of the divine within you that has, you have some goodness in you. You have to do what's in you and God will give you grace. And so when you have babies, you know, they're stained with sin, but this, this baptism can wash that stain away. But Luther saw baptism not as a washing of a stain, but as a death and a resurrection. That you are not stained by sin, that you are dead in sin. Sin is not something that is on the surface of you. You are the sin. You are so much sin that there's, you're a corpse, and baptism has to resurrect you. And he could not imagine there being any other way to see this. And so what he saw was what we should see when we, uh, when we are confronted with God, when, we have, you know, when we're at communion or we're seeing a baptism. What we should see is that God is so great and we are so sinful, it should lead us to despair. It should lead us to absolute despair. And this is what was later called the theology of humility for Luther. The theology of humility taught us that we should be in utter despair before God. There was nothing that we could do to please him. There was no doing your best. There was no best good enough. When you're baptized, 
In his mind, he was not thinking, okay, I'm going to bring this, I'm, we need to start something new, forget the Pope. He's thinking, once the Pope understands this, the Pope will get it. I mean, how can anyone read Romans and keep thinking Gabriel Beale? And so he thought, this is going to help everybody. And we can, we can strengthen the church and get our theology on, on track. The problem is, is the church was corrupt. In medieval theology, you had three places you could end up. If you didn't believe in God, you're going to hell. And there was a lot of people there. If you did believe in God, and you were baptized into the church, then you had two choices. You might go to heaven, but most likely not. Uh, heaven was reserved for the saints. <coughs> for you to go directly from earth to heaven, you got to do something pretty important, right? Maybe St. Augustine might be there, right? Uh, you know, you might have a few people there, but it's not very well populated yet. The place that most of us would end up is purgatory. Purgatory was the place where you go and the sins that you have collected here on earth get burnt off uh, in some in some way, uh, you go through some, some real stress to, to purge the sins that are still connected to you. This could be thousands of years. This could be tens of thousands of years. Spending time in purgatory, burning off your sins. And then you get to go to heaven. Then you're granted heaven. Now you notice here, this is all from that Gabriel Beale idea. That you do your best and God will give you grace. But obviously your best is never good enough. And so it's gracious that you still get to go to heaven. And it's gracious that God's going to burn off those sins for thousands of years uh, while you're waiting to get there. Okay. So how do you get people out of purgatory faster? Okay. Uh, you might have had a parent that had died and you know they weren't great on a lot of stuff. I mean, you know, maybe they're a little racist. Who knows? And uh, you need to get them out of purgatory. Well, here's the thing. There's some people that have done so many good works that there's like some merit to spare. Spare, uh, you know, you have like a, a little uh, a shack filled with extra spare merit. And so they call this a treasury of merits, that some people have done so many good works that they, did, they get to heaven, but what do you do with those extra good works where they could have gotten to heaven with like 20 works less, okay? And the, where do, what do you do with those 20 works? Uh, you store them in this treasury of merits. You say, well, could some of those merits go to my dad? He was a little racist, and now he's dead. Uh, can we get some of those merits to go to him? The Catholic Church says, sure. You sure can, good friend. 
uh, just, just need some money for that. Uh, you know, you have done some sins, and it would be good for you to show that, uh, that you're sorry for those sins by going ahead and giving us some, some, some money, and that really shows that you're sorry. And they're like, awesome. And at the same time, and here's the good deal, if you do it, you know, those uh, blue light specials, not only are you showing some penance, but you're getting your dad out of uh, purgatory faster, right? Okay, so that's how all that went, okay? Now, there was a guy named Tetzel. He was tasked to get people to pay money because you have to understand, if you're gonna, if you're gonna you know, like Washington, D.C., even though you're getting a ton of money, um, you're gonna waste it. And so they wasted a lot of money, so they needed a lot of money. And you have to remember, they're still building the Vatican at this point. And there's a lot of gold that needs to go up there. Uh, there's a lot of special uh, buildings that need to go up. You know, St. Peter's Square still needed some more uh, stones put on there. And so this all costed money. Uh, it costs a lot of money. I mean, you know, uh, Michelangelo ain't cheap. So here's... Here's the point. How do you get money? Well, you know, people are sinning a lot. It would be good to get these people to start paying up, and they can get some people out of, out of purgatory at the same time. This was a great deal. Tetzel was a great uh, salesman. Send him out. And he would start this little jingle as he came into town, nice and loud for everybody. He would say, every time a coin coffer rings... A soul from purgatory springs. It's not as catchy as every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. But of course, Jimmy Stewart wasn't around yet. So, every time a coin in, in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Now, that might sound cheesy to us, but that's because we live at a time where marketing is very important to us. Back then, they didn't have TV commercials. Very few people even knew how to read to know what entertainment even meant. I mean, most people got their news from going to church. Because what they would do is a pastor would, would give the homily after the mass. And then after the homily, he would then give an appendix. The appendix usually was some kind of political statement about how you're supposed to understand the world, and that's where they got their news, um, is at the appendix. Everyone waited for the appendix. I mean, you know, of course, they love the homily, but they really wanted to get to the appendix. What's going on out there? How am I supposed to know what's going on? Am I supposed to like the king? Am I supposed to hate the king or the emperor or whoever's running things? Okay. <coughs> so Tetzel was the guy that did this. Now, don't... Um, don't get too angry at Tetzel because Luther ends up destroying him. Um, and about two or three years after Tetzel really got popular, uh, Luther had, it to the, had people hating him to the point where he had nothing. He was just a little old man living in a shack who had no job because everyone knew who Tetzel was at that point. Um, so, uh, there's always a little revenge in the world. Uh, so Luther... Uh, finds out about this and is inferior. Inferior. I don't know why I'm having such a hard time. I, I hope uh, 
Someone say it for me. See, it is hard. Yeah, in fear, what he said. He was angry, filled with anger. Um, but you have to understand, he was not angry at indulgences in general. Okay, let me give you the example my professor gave me. Uh, something like this. Uh, if Daniel borrows my car, and uh, he's out driving, and uh, he really wants to see what a Honda CRV can do. Uh, he really wants to see, what, what can this baby do? Uh, and I'll tell you, it's a lot, because CRVs are pretty awesome. Um, so he really starts gunning it as fast as he can. He loses control and wrecks my car. I mean, just destroys it. And he comes back, and he's really sorry. And he's like, I am so sorry. I messed up. I was, it was all my fault. I was just trying to see how fast it would go, and I ruined your car. And I would then say, well, how much you got in your bank? And he would say, uh, I got like 500 bucks. And I would say, I will take that 500 bucks. Um, right? And he would like, sure, absolutely, I'm sorry. Right? And I would take that, and that would be just, wouldn't it? It would show that he's sorry. 500 bucks ain't going to cover a Honda CRV. But at least shows that he's sorry enough to give up some money, right? That's how Luther saw indulgences. Uh, if you're really sorry for what you did, this is one way you can show how sorry you are. There has to be repentance first, followed by an act of uh, contrition, which can be in the form of money. We do it at Bob Jones University, right? You get demerits. If you're really sorry, you'll pay, you'll, you're, you, you pay, right? Because that's the demerits are now worth money, aren't they, son? <laughs> yeah. So... <laughs> they're indulgences. <laughs> and they're, indul they're indulgences the way that Luther doesn't like over at Bob Jones because a lot of the kids aren't sorry. <laughs> yeah, so, so if you're just trying to get money out of someone, right? If I don't like the way Danny acts, and I'm like upset at Danny for the way he acts, and he's not, but he knows... Or maybe we can go back to the, to the example of him wrecking my car. Maybe he wrecks my car, and he's not sorry at all. He's like, hey, I wrecked your car. It was hilarious. But hey, take 500 bucks, whatever. I got 500 bucks. What are you worried about? If he had that attitude, uh, there'd be problems, right? I'm still getting the 500 bucks. What's the difference? The difference is repentance, right? This is what Luther was concerned about. The people are like, they're not repenting anymore. They say, I got the money. Here's the, here's the money. What are you worried about? And so, and, the, and the, the Catholic Church didn't care about repentance. They were like, we got the money. Let's pay Michelangelo or whatever. All right. <laughs> By the way, I have no idea when Michelangelo lived. Uh, so... Uh, if you're depending on that to be accurate, I'm sorry. Okay. Was it the same? Noise. See, I'm even accidentally right. Uh, so, okay. All right, so this is where the 95 Theses comes in. Oh, boy, we are going to have to cook through this. So the 95 Thesis comes in. He's nailing it on the uh, castle doors of Wittenberg. 
And you might think, well, this was his declaration for the Reformation. But no, that wasn't. He was, this was something that, that professors did a lot of times. Uh, they see something that they think, hey, this isn't right. Let's go debate this and talk about this. So that's what that was. Uh, you nail the thesis up so that people know what the, what the topics are going to be when you debate this with someone. Um, it wasn't this big declaration of the Reformation. It was, uh, it was hey, I'd like to talk about this. And th this is what I'd like to talk about. This, this is the list. There's 95 things. <laughs> um, and I don't know if that was a lot <clears throat> back then, but that's about right for Luther. Uh, he was a very detailed kind of guy. Um, and his complaint was about the abuse of indulgences, not against indulgences in general. Okay, so that's an important distinction to make. <coughs> it's important to make that distinction so we don't try to um, um, Protestantize Luther at this time, but it's also important to know where Luther's heart is. He's concerned that people aren't repenting anymore. And Luther uh, will later say that uh, the Christian life is a life of repentance because you are humbled before your God. See how all his theology is coming back to that, to his experience of a priest, his experience of teaching through Romans, rejecting these, these pieces of the church piece by piece as he becomes convinced of God's word. So in 1518, Luther and some other monks traveled to Heidelberg to meet for, um, it's a, just a chapter meeting. It'd, it'd be like a presbytery meeting uh, for the Augustinians, right? He's still an Augustinian monk, uh, but he did make them a lot more cool. The Dominicans and the Franciscans were like, why they get him? Uh, they were probably glad because they're, you know, they're probably a bunch of, you know, really on board with the church. And they thought, look at that rebel. I knew those Augustinian monks were junk. Okay, so there's all, there's all these rivals, right? There's always rivals. There's rivals in every denomination, all that sort of thing. You know how that is. Okay, so one of the things they do when they meet for their little meetings was to debate something. And so uh, Luther brought some concerns, about 28 of them, so we had a few less concerns this time, um, and it was called the Heidelberg Disputation, basically the Heidelberg Debate. And so he wanted to debate 28 different theses, but it came down to this. What he was getting at was contrasting between what he called a theologian of glory and a theologian of the cross. A theologian of glory is one that extrapolates how, what they think about God from what they know on earth. This would explain my apologetics class, right? All the questions I get from my kids in my apologetics class come down to the fact that they're taking something they learned on earth and said, well, God must be like that. So you see a king who rules over people and he's kind of, he'll do things that that help everyone in general, but might hurt a few people. And they, well, that's what God's like. You know, he does his best with what he has. You know, he's like a king. He, he, he wants the best, but some people are going to get hurt along the way. And, you know, he's sorry about that, but there's nothing he can do. That's what God's like, right? We do this all the time with God. 
Every time we get angry at God, we've already imagined God like us, but with less ethics, right? That God is really just like us, but with superpowers, and he could control, you know, this thing, and he, and he didn't do it the way that would, that would have made me more happy, and if he would have been more ethical like me, I would have used my superpowers better, Right? And that's how we think of God. We extrapolate what we see on earth, and then we say, this must be what God's like. Luther says that's a theologian of glory. And what he means by that is a theologian that wants glory. A theologian of the cross looks at God as how he has revealed himself through Christ, and particularly Christ on the cross. And so man understands God as God reveals himself in a great mystery. So mystery for Luther is exciting, not an enemy. It's a mystery for Luther to see Christ on the cross. Because what Luther would say, see what we would say is Jesus died on the cross. But Jesus is God. His, the, his essence of his godness did not die Right, Because as Calvinists, we're very reasoned about these things. Right, His human nature died, and we understand that. Luther would say, God died on the cross, and God rose again. And people would say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. And he would say, makes sense, it doesn't need to make sense. That's what the Bible says, that's what it is. And that's how Luther would, would think, Right? And as he sees Christ on the cross, he finds joy in knowing that this great paradox is right in front of us. The Almighty God dies on the cross for those that aren't worthy of it. And that is a theologian of the cross. Theologian of the cross understands God's love different than the way we love. When we fall in love with someone, we fall in love with our with with our wives, um, uh, we uh, we see them, and we see their beauty, and we're already attracted to the beauty. Does that make sense? We're already attracted to beauty. So long before I met April, I was attracted to beautiful things. Then when I saw April, I thought, oh, she has that beauty. I found beauty in her because I already liked beauty. Does that make sense? There's nothing in us for God to love. There's nothing that God already likes, and then he found it in us. God had to create that which he loved in us. And that is at the core of Luther's theology of the cross. And he did it through his son, through the suffering of his son. Um... We're going to have to close it down, but next week we'll have part two. Does that sound good? Yeah. Next week we'll have part two, and we'll get through the rest, because the rest is still very important, because it really shapes. The idea of Reformation still is not in the mind of Luther yet. Correction is in the mind of Luther, where he is convinced that as long as the, the people up top hears about this, they're going to love it. 
And they're going to say, what have we been thinking? We've got to stop abusing these people. We need the theology of the cross. We've been theology of, of, of glory so far. We need the theology of the cross, right? People with vision oftentimes think the best of those within their institution. That's the difference between a rebel and the, pers- and the person who is a, a visionary. Right? The fact that your pastor stayed in the PCA as long as he did tells you what kind of a man he is who saw a vision that thought if they listen, they'll correct things. And it took a long time to make that decision to leave when they wouldn't. Right? It's an immature person that says, How can I be special and make my own thing? <laughs> right? That's the way young men typically are. And so Luther saw that same, uh, was one of those people that had a vision and thought, once they hear this, they'll listen. We will find that they don't. <laughs> and then we will find why the Reformation started. I think the Reformation has more to do with a guy named John Eck than it does with what Luther was envisioning. Uh, so we'll, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just tempt you with that, and you'll be thinking about it all week, and then we'll finish this off next week. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that we can look at men who depended on you and make us feel shameful at how little we depend on you. Lord, we look at men who were bold and felt their boldness through your Son and how ashamed it makes us when we are embarrassed of your Son. Lord, we pray that you would give us uh, insight and break our hearts with your spirit, Lord, today as we listen to uh, the sermon from our pastor. Lord, give him the words, bring power to his words, Lord, that we might be able to humble ourselves before it as we come before our almighty God this morning. Lord, we ask these things in your son's name. Amen.